I'd like to go ahead and open your Bibles up to the book of John. The book of John, uh, specifically chapter 10. We'll be reading from there in just a moment. Beginning our study there this afternoon. First, do you know that one of the most popular beliefs people have about salvation today? If you are to ask people about salvation and, 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 and what it means to be saved and what we must do to be saved, one of the most popular beliefs that people have in this day and age. In a study done by, uh, excuse me, in a study done by the Barna Group, people were asked if they could, uh, if they had accepted Jesus into their lives, would they go to heaven no matter what? Of that group, 63% said yes. 63% of that group said yes, there is nothing I can do to change where I'm going once I have accepted Jesus as Lord, um, th- there's just nothing else that can, there's nothing that could take that away. I am eternally secure, if you will. John chapter 10 houses one of the main reasons people have this idea. In John chapter 10, verse 28, we read, And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. When it comes to my boys, I often tell them, uh, especially over this very exciting and, and uh, trying uh, holiday season that we have had, so much stuff is being thrown at them and their senses are kind of overloaded a little bit, it's often that I tell them, boys, you have two choices. You can obey what we say, or you can disobey what we say and deal with the consequences. They, uh, they maybe are asked to clean their room. If they clean their room, they will be pleasing to us. If they do not clean their room, they will get a spanking, and then they will go back in there and they will clean their room. But sometimes when we have this discussion, I find that they are seeking a third option, that, that mystical third option that says, I don't have to do what you said, and I don't have to get punished either. And no matter how sincere they are in expecting that option to exist, it doesn't. It's not there. But I want to say it's not just my children. Many of us are like this. The Israelites were like this. They were told, and if you obey me, by God, if you obey me, I will bless you. But if you do not obey me, and if you disobey me, I will curse you. But they chose that third option. Wanting to do things their way without the consequences that would come with it. And, and you know that is seen just so vividly. Over in the book of Judges, turn here just for a moment. In Judges chapter 6, when we see Gideon being approached by God, and, and we can read a little bit in Judges chapter 6 about the, 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 the mindset of the Israelites at this time. And if we start, <clears throat> excuse me, if we start down and around verse... Why did I not write the verse down? Uh, if we start down around um, start in verse 7. Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of Midian, that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, It is I who went out from the house of slavery. I delivered you in from the hands of the Egyptians, from the hands of all the oppressors, and disposed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not 
You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in those lands who you live, but you have not obeyed me. And then we see Gideon asking them, or asking, asking the, the angel of the Lord as he's talking to him later on. Here, verse, starting down in verse 12. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. And Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has he ha- allowed all this to happen? Why then has all this happened to, to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. So there is where we see this, this interaction going on with Gideon, where he has come and approached by God, and, and the, the angel of the Lord gives him instruction, and he asks this question. He says, where have you been? I don't understand why all these bad things are happening, even though they, they had been told, if you disobey me, you will be cursed. If you disobey me, these bad things will come upon you. It was just unimaginable in that day that God was going to do exactly what he said he would do. In fact, if we skip on down to verse 25, Gideon's father, as we read in verse 25, was involved in Baal worship. Was, he had an Asherah pole. They had these things that were involving pagan sacrifices and pagan worship. And, and yet Gideon has the audacity to say, why are bad things happening to me, God? We aren't even worshiping you anymore. We are worshiping these other gods. And yet, where are you? Where are you, God? That's as far as they had wandered from him. And I want to suggest that today can be quite similar. Today is oftentimes not much different. Because today, similarly, we have two choices. We can choose to follow God, or we can choose not to follow God. And all too often, a third option is so desirable. And that third option is oftentimes found in the false doctrine of once saved, always saved. This question was asked of me not too long ago about to, to, to speak on this. And you know, I've really been mulling it over and, and giving it some thought. Wondering where exactly does this doctrine come from? What are the ramifications of this doctrine and of this idea and this train of, of, of thought? And how does this relate to me as a Christian? Well, to begin, let's notice that this problem is as old as time itself. We'll turn back to the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Satan first introduced this thought in Genesis chapter 3 in the garden. We read in verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. When he told Eve that if she, if she ate of this fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, she would be fine, saying, Surely you will not die. That three little word that... that augmented what God has said, what changed God's command and brought sin into the world was an outright, bald-faced lie going directly against what God had said. But Satan was successful in convincing Eve that her relationship with God would be fine, would not change, no matter even if she disobeyed his teaching, his command 
on what fruit they should eat from the garden. And just those the one three-letter words, Satan brought in the idea that would eventually become this idea of being once and forever eternally saved here on this earth. The early church, likewise, still struggled against this doctrine. From the father of lies himself, as the early um, as early as the second century, this doctrine was a very big issue against, uh, for the, uh, the Christians. A man by the name of Arrhenius, who wrote, who wrote a book called Against Heresies in the uh, second century, was very concerned about a religion called Gnosticism. And in his book, he speaks regarding their teachings. And he says, but as to themselves, again, talking about those who were, who were Gnostics, believed uh, in this, uh, followed this Gnosticism, But as to themselves, they hold that they shall be entirely and undoubtedly saved, not by means of conduct, but because they are spiritual by nature. For just as it is impossible that material substance should partake of salvation, since indeed they maintain that it is incapable of receiving it, so again it is impossible that spiritual substance, by which they mean themselves, should ever come under the power of corruption, whatever the sort of actions in which they indulge. For even as gold, when submerged in filth, loses not on account its beauty, but retains its own native qualities, the filth having no power to injure the gold, so they affirm that they cannot in any measure suffer hurt or lose their spiritual substance, whatever the material actions in which they may be involved. Wherefore also it comes to pass that the most perfect among them addict themselves without fear to all these kinds of forbidden deeds, of which the Scriptures assure us that they who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now that's a really long way of saying that these people believed they could do whatever they wanted to because once they had been saved, they were so precious that, that nothing could injure that, that position that they were in. They could do anything that they liked and still be fine and, and still be saved in the eyes of God. Later in the 1500s, a man by the name of John Calvin would again help to spread this doctrine further. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 19, it claims, They whom God hath accepted in His beloved, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Nowhere in the Scriptures do we find anything supporting the ideas other than a few passages that have been taken out of context. Nowhere supports what they're saying. Even in John chapter 10, we might think, but wait a minute, we just read that. John chapter 10, it talked about those who would uh, would never perish and that could never be snatched from his hand. What's all that language about? If this stuff isn't true and isn't supported, what does that mean? Let's go back and let's look at John chapter 10 in context. Reading starting in verse 27. It says, My sheep hear my voice, and now I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand, and I, I and the Father, are one. Jesus is talking to the Jews here at this feast of dedication. And they'd come to him and they'd ask him, to just tell us plainly, Are you the Christ or are you not the Christ? That's what we want to know. And his response in verse 25 and 26, he says to them, I already told you, and you didn't believe, and you didn't believe because you are not my sheep. 
That's the context of verse 27. So what is his sheep? Well, they are those who hear his voice, are known by him, and follow him. Here we have what many either choose to overlook or simply do not take the time to consider. The eternal life given, the promise that they would never perish, the claim that no one will snatch them out of my hand is made to those who hear Christ, are known by him. And verse 14 tells us how we can be known by him. Verse 14 says, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. So to be known by him means we must belong to him. So if we hear his voice and belong to him and we follow him, then we can, then when this promise is made to us that we will have eternal life and that we will never perish and that we will not be snatched out of his hand. And again, that word follow in verse 27 is, is a word that is compounded. It means to be of the same way. It's used to describe a, a road that one is walking on and is going in the same direction as someone else or to be taught by or to walk in a certain path What that word means is we have these promises if we are disciples of Christ. That means we are following his teachings. His teachings. That means we are doing what he has asked us to do. And we are not walking contrary to the path that he has laid out before us. John 10 verse 28 in no way teaches that we can begin a life of discipleship to Christ. But stray from the path and still hope to wind up in the right destination. That really makes about as much sense as me giving you instructions on how to get to Cincinnati. Maybe I tell you to go to Cincinnati, you're going to head north on 75. And so you get on 75 and you start heading north and right about the middle of Lexington, you see 64 East. And you turn off on 64 East and I can tell you right now that you're not going to make it to Cincinnati without a whole lot of work and some turning around. That's where we get the ideas of like repentance. Repentance literally was a word that was used to describe people who were in the desert and were lost, and they had lost the path, so what would they do? They would turn around, do a 180-degree turn, and walk back where they came from until they were able to find the right path. This idea of once saved, always saved cannot be proven and and certainly contradicts much of what we're taught in Scriptures. But let's consider again, what the, uh, excuse me, let me catch myself up here. What the ramifications of this doctrine are for a moment. Because you can see this doctrine the world over. Again, this is a very popular belief. 63% in this study said there's nothing I can do to take away my salvation. People are full of hope that they are going to heaven. The world is full of people that just know that. No, they're going to heaven. And certain that on the day of judgment, they are going to hear, O good and faithful servant, enter in. The only problem is for many, they have not actually been good or faithful servants. What we have is a group of people who have been lied to. A group of people who have been tricked by Satan. Not a group of people that are inherently just terrible people. A group of people who have allowed a wolf in sheep's clothing to take away their salvation because they have followed after Satan. People who, just like Eve, are facing spiritual death, separation from God because they are not hearing what God has plainly said. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4. 
Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4 says, You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Again, this was the, the, the this goes against, contradicts the teaching of, of John Calvin and, and that confession of faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith. And they say it is impossible to fall from grace. No. Paul said very plainly here that you can be severed from Christ, you can fall from grace, and you cannot be severed from something that you were never in or, or not at first in at one time, or not at first one time connected to. So once we are connected to Christ, we have the very real danger of being severed. You cannot fall from something that you were not at one time in. Galatians 5 verse 4 completely contradicts these teachings that one can never be severed or one cannot fall from grace. Jude, verse 5, says, Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Note, excuse me, note that those, or these were the people who were saved when they escaped Egyptian slavery. These were the people who were taken out of the bondages of 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 uh, slavery and made free people by God, and yet there were those who did not believe, and they were destroyed. We think back to the first time the Israelites came and, and looked into the land of Canaan, and they sent the 12 spies in, and the 12 spies went in, and, and they saw the, the wonders that were Canaan, and they said, this is a great place, but we can't take it. There's no way we can take that because it's filled with giants, and we're just we're, we're very small people compared to them. We have no chance. And of the 12, only 10, uh, or only two, were, were standing up willing to say, we can do this with God on our side. Joshua and, uh, and Caleb, the only two that were willing to, to trust in God. These other 10 who had been saved out of Egypt convinced the nation as a whole that we can't do it. And what happened? They, they wandered the, the wilderness for another 38 years until everyone of that age and up had died. They were saved, but they fell. They fell from that salvation. They lost their lives. They were destroyed because they did not believe. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 8 through 12 says, Harden not your hearts as in the provocation, like as in the day of the trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by proving me and saw my works forty years. Wherefore I was displeased with this generation and said, They do always err in their heart, but they did not know my ways. As I swore to my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest happily there shall be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief in falling away from the living God. Once again, referring to the Israelites who were delivered from Egypt for Egyptian slavery, the author of Hebrews wrote, uh, or refers to those who were disobedient as having falling, uh, fallen away from the living God. Some claim that those that are lost were, were never truly saved in the first place, but but this is talking about the same people who Jude just got through referring to. And again, you cannot fall away from something that you were never in. This is certainly talking about people who have fallen from grace. <clears throat> Let's consider for a moment another passage. Turn over to the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, look in chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, and Acts is a, a magnificent book for us to spend time in and study and consider the, 
the things that were going on in this first century, the things that the church was doing, the things that individuals were doing, and the way that people were being converted to Christ. And here we see the conversion of many people in Samaria, including a man called Simon, a man that we oftentimes refer to as Simon the Sorcerer. He was a practitioner of magic, and what he had done was convinced all these people that he had, quote-unquote, the great power of God. He was pretending to be some, some magnificent man from God and using parlor tricks of some sort to fool people into believing what he was. But then Philip comes. Philip comes and he taught them the gospel. And he preached unto them the kingdom of God. And when compared against the true message of Christ, everyone could see right through Simon. They recognized the truth, and so many were converted and were being baptized, and that included Simon. Simon as well saw his error and was baptized. But read what happens next. In verses 14 through 24, it says, Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them, Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon, uh, fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. And now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone whom I lay my hands on, or by, uh, whom I lay my hands, may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me yourselves so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. I want us to note very carefully the events of Acts chapter 8. One, Simon was baptized and, according to Acts chapter 2, verse 38, had received forgiveness of his sins. It didn't matter what he had done up to that point. At that point, when he, when he believed and confessed and repented and was baptized, Simon, Simon's slate was wiped clean. Simon was forgiven for the things he had done. Number two, Simon sees this gift that God had given the apostles. He sees what, what Peter is able to do, and he says, let me buy that from you. Let me buy that so I can have the same abilities that you have, so I can give it to other people. Number three, Simon is told, your heart is not right with God. Number four, did they do nothing? They said, it doesn't really matter because you're eternally secure. You have nothing to worry about. And they said, no, you need to repent. You need to pray. And that's exactly what we see Simon doing, repenting and asking Peter and Philip, saying, pray for me. Pray for me that these things that you talked about, that I might not perish, because he understood the gravity of the situation, that even though he had been saved, and even though he was found in Christ, at this point he was severed from Christ. He was no longer in Christ, and he needed desperately for that relationship to be restored and it is restored through turning from sin and praying for forgiveness for our sins. And this is what God's Word teaches us. That we must turn and we must continue no more in our sin. But why? 
What's the worst thing that can happen? What's the worst thing that can come from believing this, this doctrine of once saved, always saved? <clears throat> well, to think of that, let's turn back to Jude again. We read Jude chapter 5, and, and certainly the worst thing that can come from this is, is eternity uh, away from God, separated from God. But there is something that happens much more, much more evidently right now in this day and age. In verse 5 of Jude, we read, Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that Lord, or that the Lord, after saving a people of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. But look at what he had said just before these words. In verse 4. In verse 4 we read, For certain persons having crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turned the grace of our God into licentiousness, and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Licentiousness means filth. It means wantonness, outrageousness, shamelessness. Jude was talking about the same thing that this doctrine produces. It produces this licentiousness. Many people who believe this doctrine, again, as I say, are good people. It's not that they are evil because they believe these things. And they don't believe that murder is okay or that rape is okay. But that is the end to which this doctrine leads. And there's no denying it. If I am once and for all time saved, then nothing I can do can have an effect on my salvation. And that includes some of the most heinous acts done by mankind, even if they don't want to believe it. Supporters of this doctrine can't ultimately deny that it does lead down this path. And if they are a member of a church that teaches this false doctrine, then they are endorsing this false doctrine as well. So, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for me as a Christian? Because I don't believe this at all. The Bible has shown in many different places that I can fall from grace, that I can be severed from Christ. So how does that affect me? Because there are so many people that do believe it. Well, in considering that, I want to turn over to, to the book of 2 Timothy. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 2 says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience, and instruction. What does this mean for me? It means that I have to be bold. I have to be certain that, that I am studying God's words and I, am, and I am able to take what I learn and go into people in this world and speak His word and speak it unapologetically. We have no reason to apologize for what God has said. But we do need to do it in a certain manner. We have nothing to be ashamed of. God's word, his gospel, it is the power to save. But we must remember that we need to do so in a way that exhorts, in a way that builds up, not tears down. While our ultimate goal may be to tear down this, this doctrine of, of, of false lies, we need to remember that it is a soul that we are speaking to. It is another person who is created by God. And it is our intention to help him be in the image of God. So we must not tear them down. We must have great patience. And we must have great instruction. 
And that's hard. That is very difficult. I heard someone say the other day that Amazon somewhere is testing out same-day deliveries. Same-day deliveries. You get on Amazon.com, you go, that looks really good. I would like that. And they say, well, we can have it there in three days. You say, nope, not fast enough. What about two days? Nope. We even give you one day shipping and it'll be free. No, I want it today. You know, when I first read this, I, I, I did think to myself, that is great. That is really cool. Especially because I get this idea of a drone delivering it, and I'm just all about that. That sounds really neat. Then the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, that might not be what our society needs. We want things now. We want our movies now. We want our food now. Next time you're, you're in a line at a fast food joint, and it's taking more than seven minutes, and you're getting a little antsy. Think about that. I'm waiting seven minutes. That is not a long time to wait for a meal. We want our success in life now. I heard it described one time as hey, we are a group of people that are standing at the base of a mountain, and we see our goal, the summit of that mountain, and we want to be picked up and plopped on that summit without having to climb the mountain. I don't care how long it takes. I don't care if you're a fast climber or a short climber. At some point, we still have to go up the mountain to reach that, that summit. And that requires patience. And that requires diligence. That requires us saying, I, I, I see my goal, and it is worth it to me to put the time into it and the blood and the sweat and the tears. And when we see people who don't have the right understanding about God's Word. We see people who, who look to this and, and they, they say it is their source uh, of, of authority and where they, they get their hope and their salvation, but they have been told lies. They believe things that aren't true. That should have an effect on you and me. That should make us want to do something to help that soul that God created know more perfectly his will. But we have to be patient. We have to be willing to work with them. We have to be willing to talk with them calmly. And at some time, we have to be willing to step away and pray that the seeds that we have planted will someday be watered by someone else. We need to not be afraid to speak the truth about God and about His salvation and yes, about his punishment of the unrighteousness. But we need to remember it takes time for people to tear down walls of thoughts that have been in place for who knows how long. We need to be firm, we need to be loving, and we need to be praying. This afternoon, this afternoon, if there is something that has separated you from Christ, I hope that you won't wait. If there is something that has severed your relationship with the Lord, if you have fallen from grace because sin has entered back into your life, you can turn from that sin. And in turning away from it and praying that God will forgive you, you can be confident to know that He will. Maybe that's one of the hardest parts about this. You know, whenever we, we first come to Christ, there's something that physically happens. We, we repent, we make a decision to repent of our sins. We, we confess to others that we believe. And then we are physically submerged in water, being baptized, submitting ourselves to Him for the forgiveness of our sins. And maybe because of those physical things, 
that makes us feel a whole lot better. Sometimes it's a whole lot harder after the fact when we once again allow sin into our lives and we stray from the path and we have to pray to God that He will forgive us and then we have to go on trust alone. There is no physical marker in this life to show where I prayed for forgiveness for that sin. There is just my trust and faith in God that He is just to do so. If there is some way this afternoon that we can help you, whether it be first coming to the Lord or whether it be turning your life back to Him, I hope that you will not wait. You will not delay. Please let it be known right now as we stand and as we sing.